Welcome to a special episode of the Boy in the Trash Can podcast. As a listener caution, this episode contains content that some may find challenging. The podcast is one year old tomorrow. Your listening and sharing the podcast got to this milestone. The median age of all podcasts is just 147 days, and about 20% don't make it past 10 episodes, and only about 5% release weekly. So with that, I'm pretty honored that you continue to join the podcast each week. I started this podcast because there were several people along my journey that have said I should write a book. Well, I actually started that process, and after more than a decade, I just couldn't get to the finish line. I learned about podcasting only a few years ago and was toying with that idea. This might be a great way to see if there was really interest in my story. Then, just over a year ago, Heather Thomas gave me the push to actually start, and, well, here we are. Over the course of the year, listeners have tuned in from 36 different countries, 45 states, and 460 cities around the world. I've been thinking about this episode for some time, and my initial plans were to pretty much reminisce of the journey to this point. So I'm going to do that, and I'm also going to share what I've been talking about in the last couple of episodes called The Lost Decade. Part of the reason why is that aspects of it don't fit well within single episodes as I go along. So anyway, let's go back to where we started. From episode two, the year was 1958, almost five years after the truce was called between the United Nations Security Command and the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, known as North Korea, pausing the so-called Korean War. The times were desperate and the country was war-torn. People were left with little promise and after years of war, and it is difficult for us today to understand what life was like back then. I know I certainly can't. The impact on some of the most vulnerable non-combatants takes an unimaginable toll for anyone who has not experienced it. As an infant from that time, I obviously do not have memory of it either. A woman, whose identity is unknown, was pregnant. When it came time to give birth, she made a decision. The woman gave birth to a boy. The boy was found within a couple of days at most in a trash can and it was evident that the boy had received no nutrition and was left to die. As the story goes, the little boy was crying, which is what led the daughter of Harry Holt to find this infant and took him to a nearby orphanage. That little boy was me. I and the boy in the trash can. Rescued, a recently young married couple learned that they couldn't have natural children, and the woman in central New York read about Harry Holt and his quest to save orphans in Korea from Reader's Digest. They decided to start the process to form a family with the plan to adopt two boys, a toddler and an infant. I was the infant and just 49 days old, arrived in the United States. When I was laid on my tummy, I was still so bloated from malnutrition 
that my feet didn't touch the mattress. William and Barbara Terwilliger would learn over time that they could have natural children, and in the span of just over a decade, went from two children to a total of nine, six adopted, with five from Holt. We journeyed through an unusual childhood, high school, and entering the United States Air Force. While my childhood was atypical, it wasn't with a lack of love. My challenges started in school by fellow classmates. I think that a keynote speech that I made in honor of Pride Month in 2012 shared the lens through which I see the world and has been shaped by experience as someone who is different. In part, I said, How many of you were abandoned at birth? How many of you were raped as a child? How many of you were bullied nearly every day in school? How many of you were raped as an adult? How many of you were held up at gunpoint more than once? How many of you have been physically assaulted requiring medical attention? How many of you have had multiple home invasions? And how many of you have been denied because of how you look? Some raised their hands, very few. And I said, well, I have experienced all of these things throughout my life. Early on, it was very difficult to understand. And as I got older, I decided that my approach was to get back up, dust myself off, and move forward. It wasn't always easy. And sometimes it was difficult. The message is that if I can, anyone can. In the podcast, I refer to these incidences as my purple rain. There is even more serious purple rain coming up as we move forward. But by dusting myself off, I've also had some amazing rainbows after the purple rain. I graduated with honors from high school. I was Airman of the Year in my first year of my Air Force career and then Officer of the Year in my first year as a commissioned officer. I earned four medals in the first five years of my career and quarterly awards, 12 of the first 20 that I was enlisted. I earned my first major command award and were going to earn two more later in my career, as well as the Air Force Award. When I went to the TAC staff, I was one of the most junior on the Air Staff. I was a regional finalist in the White House Fellowship Program, and between 1981 and 1983, while in the Air Force, I earned an associate's degree, a bachelor's degree, and a master's degree. Then, almost a decade later, in just three years, earned an educational specialist degree and a doctor of education degree. I shared the purple rain because my journey hasn't been all unicorns and rainbows. Whose is? Then I shared the rainbows to this point in the podcast because at the end of the day, I am still an optimist. Well, most days. And there are more rainbows coming up in the journey as well. Before I continue on, I want to add that the purpose of exposing this part of my life in this speech was to talk about how various groups of people across a wide spectrum are both viewed and treated differently. Yet it is those different views and those different people that make up the threads of the fabric of America. And I believe that still 
today. My point is that if I hadn't gotten up when I'd been pushed down, if I hadn't dusted myself off and instead carried all those rocks in my backpack, well, I wouldn't be doing this podcast. What has been the best part of doing the podcast for me is that I've been able to not only share my story, I've been able to reminisce about amazing people along the way. Some of you have commented on how amazing my mom was, and she was both an inspiration to who I am today, and yes, amazing in both normal and in some unusual ways. We are all impacted by our youth, and she grew up during the Great Depression, and I'm convinced that because of that, the days of financial instability and the economy of those days shaped her creativity. Plus, she was a talented artist before her family took most of her time and her passions became her children. She was perhaps, without perhaps, she was the most selfless person that I've ever known. She was a Christian woman who believed in teaching her children perhaps the most important life lesson, integrity. On the farm, since my dad was allergic to both cats and two of the most common plants on a farm, Timothy, which is a primary hay source, and goldenrod, also prevalent in upper New York State, it was really mom who had the farm. With perseverance and ambition and a lot of love and advice from her dad and her two brothers. Did it grow too much? Perhaps And I shared that conversation with her on one of my trips home after enlisting in the Air Force, as you may remember. And while she passed already 40 years ago, it barely sometimes seems like yesterday. There are a few days that I don't think about how she impacted my life and how the stories of yesteryear are still very funny today. And funny then, although some less funny then. Or how I likely am who I am because of her. It's truly that simple. I vaguely remember meeting the woman who found me in the trash can at a New York State Fair during a whole family's event. Though very young, I do remember not knowing what to say to her. Going back to the orphanage in the 1980s was one of the greatest experiences of my life and seeing what my life would have been in Korea. I volunteered many weekends, and while I'm pretty confident I didn't add much, well, because I didn't speak much Korean, okay, no Korean, I got an even greater gift from Holt after being adopted by learning more about my history, as well as the most memorable experiences with the wheelchair-bound athletes who were preparing to compete in the 1988 Seoul Paralympics. That assault in the dorm room less than a year after being in the Air Force is perhaps the most memorable Purple Rain because it was then that I made the best decision of my life and that was to stay in the Air Force when offered to be discharged. Running away was not the right choice and I knew that then, yet little did I know how that decision would go from the worst day in my career to so many days of celebration. And it was through this podcast 
that I reconnected with John Miller, who took me into his home, along with his bride Rita, that fateful day when I wasn't allowed to go back into the dorm where the assault occurred. I'm not 100% sure my Air Force career would have been the same if it had not been for them. His contributions to the podcast as a guest, along with my brother, singer-songwriter Marcus, and my good friends Joanne Coleman and Ken Bryson, have truly inspired me as well as added a wonderful dimension to the podcast. I am very thankful for them agreeing to be part of the adventure both then and now, and I hope to continue to have special guests that I can coax to join me. One of the connections that I made through the podcast is also finding and learning more about the Safe Haven Baby Boxes organization. They, today, are trying every day to ensure that there isn't another boy or girl in a trash can right here in the United States. It's so hard to believe that there are stories in the news just like that. And there are stories who, that are inspiring about brave and courageous moms who cannot or do not want to care for their newborn and gives them a huge chance at an amazing life because of a baby box. It's not political. It's being able to make a difference between certain death or life. Yes, all that purple rain in my life has been a big challenge. What has become very much in focus today, through a better understanding of the impact of my experiences, is that each time I experienced purple rain, it was growing like a tumor inside me. And while I didn't even know it existed, I also didn't know how it was multiplying. I kept dusting myself off and pressing forward. This is the foundation of trying to explain how more than a decade was lost because while I could feel that it seemed like it was me against the world, what I didn't know then was that while it likely wasn't a fair view at the time, it was my view. What I know today is that while I wasn't diagnosed with PTSD and MDD for another many years from where we are in the podcast, there didn't seem to be a realistic approach to someone who had the kinds of trauma that I had in the 1970s. There wasn't anyone who understood what I was going through, and frankly, I was also incredibly naive in knowing what that would even look like. What I knew is that over time, I became more and more ostracized and out of touch with the world around me. So this isn't really that easy to explain. But the last decade really started in the mid-1992 period or so until about 2005. Okay, it's not really like it was on my calendar. The things that were going through my mind by this point was that, did I really fit into a society that said, you're different almost at every turn? Did I fit into a society that despised that I finally figured out that I was attracted to other men? And did I fit into a society that beat me down more times than I can recall? Mostly, did I fit into a society where some would make me feel less than? 
In my mind, the answer was no, and increasingly so. Today, I can look back and see how the many symptoms that are listed for people who have PTSD were amplified in my life. I just didn't know what it was or that it was occurring. The main thing that happened then was that I distanced myself from almost every relationship that I had with my family and friends. That's not uncommon for people who have PTSD. In fact, that's one of the primary observations that people will see. It wasn't 100%, but it was darn close. It was a period where my work was my refuge in a similar way that being in classes during my college years was an escape from both everything and, in some ways, from my own self. The other big thing that started to affect me was a form of increasing hypervigilance. I didn't even know what that really was, but it is a term that best describes what I was going through during this period. I was preoccupied with scanning my environment for threats and, to some degree, a concern that I was being attacked in some way in a very deliberate way. And it, it wasn't true, of course, but that didn't mean that it wasn't real from my perspective. In some ways, it was a lot like, who is going to be the next person with the gotcha situation? And so if you fast forward all of this, while this is all building up, or using the tumor analogy again, the tumor was exploding, and it was taking me with it. It wasn't that I couldn't trust people. It was that I couldn't put what was happening in a context that separated real from the imagined. Okay, so here is a message that I truly hope is one of the most important that you take away from this part of my story. As a former professor, I'm going to say, foot stomp, it's going to be on the test. People with PTSD are all different. It's not a one-size-fits-all disease. And when you hear it in the news about, oh, someone has done something horrible and they use the excuse or they talk about the fact that the person has PTSD, then everyone gets brushed with this very broad brush about people with PTSD. And it's not fair and it's not accurate. Another point that I've learned that is important to know is that it's not uncommon for a person with long-term PTSD to have a period of remission. It seems like everything is back on track or so-called normal, and for the most part, everything is going fairly well. And while that's great, there still can be triggers that can bring it back, roaring or creeping in a most unexpected way. What I know now is that through my lost decade, People were affected in different ways, and just as it wasn't intentional on their part, it wasn't intentional on mine. And yet I know that there was pain. I'm telling my story because I hope that it helps others say to themselves, okay, I've experienced that too. It's not just me. I'm also telling this part of my story because while I think PTSD is misnamed and by and large mistreated from my own perspective and experience, it's real. And there are ways to get help for those with PTSD today that didn't exist decades ago. It can be incredibly painful to learn and it can be incredibly painful to understand what happened in one's life. You can move forward. 
you also can find help. Today, there are even apps that provide therapists in times of challenge that a person needs. I'm not endorsing any of them, and I certainly am not giving anyone medical advice. What I am saying, though, is that if you've experienced trauma or have been harmed across the spectrum of what that can mean, beyond what I've experienced, talk to someone. Seek assistance in managing what you are experiencing. Why? Because we all deserve to be happy, and we all deserve to be treated more than, not less than. So in summary, my lost decade, or decade plus, was lonely and painful. Very painful. Knowing how people were affected by my lost decade still pains me. So here we are. To those who abused or harmed me, I say, here I am. To those who that were there for me along the way, I say, thank you. No words can say how I feel about you. If you just consider that you were why I got over the hump, your compassion, courage, kindness, trumped the evil in others. Here we are, a year journaling my life. Thanks for coming on my journey with me, and I hope you will continue to walk along with me the rest of the way. I promise there will be more rainbows than purple rain. There will be more smiles than tears. And today it's Princess Kona who has the biggest job of making me smile every morning. And she does that very, very well. I'm dedicating this episode to you, those who listen from near and far, people I know and people I don't. It's an honor to have you listen each week, and at the end of the day, remember what I've been saying for weeks, Cinderella's mom was right. Have courage and be kind. While I don't always have courage and I'm not always kind, I do try. Have a great week. There's a lot more to come. And next week, we'll still be at the University of Texas in Austin.